It's New Comics Day, Wednesday, November 25th, 2015, and you're listening to God and Comics, the show where your favorite clergy hosts prove once again that we're lovers and not fighters. On today's show, Violence in Comics. Over the years, the violence depicted in comic books and in their adaptations on the silver screen has become increasingly bloody. We'll talk about what the place of violence in comics has been, what it should be, and we'll do our best not to beat each other up in the process. Plus, as always, we'll have our recommendation, this or that, and a whole lot more. I'm Father Jonathan Michikin. I am rector of Church of the Holy Comforter in Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania. On the line with me today is Father Matt Stromberg. Father Matt, where are you? I'm in Christ Church, Cooperstown, New York. And also on the line is Father Kyle Tomlin. Father Kyle, where are you? I'm at Church of the Messiah in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Wonderful to see you guys yet again. So uh, let's get right into our recommendation. Father Kyle, what do you have for us? I have an oldie but a goodie for you today. With the uh, impending release of Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns Part 3, I'm actually recommending Frank Miller's original, The Dark Knight Returns. This was a series of four comic books that were published in 1986, but you can now find them easily in collected form and trade paperback form. But it tells the story of Batman um, set in a sort of dystopian future that looks a little bit like the 1980s. And um, (laughs) Batman has been out of action for 10 years in the story and he has put on some weight and grown a mustache and the city Gotham city has crumbled around him. And so, uh, after being mugged in crime alley, the exact spot where his parents were murdered, he decides that it's time to come back into action and do something about the city and the gang of mutants who have, um, taken over. And so the, story itself kind of unpacks how he goes back into battle and deals with this gang of thugs and also um, chronicles his final encounter with Two-Face, who is physically cured but not mentally cured, and deals with his last battle with the Joker. An incident where he ends up killing the Joker is included in there, which then prompts a final climactic Spoiler. Spoiler alert. uh, (laughs) 30 years old, so what are you going to do, right? Yeah, right. So I highly recommend it. I think it's a very well-written story. I have not read the second volume, The Dark Knight 2, yet. I'm kind of looking forward to reading it, although I've heard bad things about it, which is... Yeah, you might not want to bother with that one. Yeah. It was not one of Frank Miller's greatest moments. That's what I've been told. If you haven't read The Dark Knight Returns, what is wrong with you? Do so immediately. If you are if you are a comic book fan, this is an absolute classic that, That's right. that should be in everyone's collection. So, so, Father Kyle, maybe can you say a word about why that particular volume was such a turning point? Yeah, it was such a turning point um, at the time. One, because I think it was pushing the boundaries of what was acceptable in comics to a degree. And it's funny that we're talking about violence today, and this was (laughs) partly planned. 
um, on my part, but I think it turned a corner in terms of the acceptability of certain levels of violence in comic books. I also think that, uh, that just sort of the political take having a little bit of a deeper storyline than some of the standard comics that were on the rack in those days made it a significant comic. So I, I certainly think for all those reasons, it really stood out. It pushed Batman back into a darker corner than his character had been in Batman and Detective Comics at that point in time. And that sort of provided a turning point because from then on out, we get things like Christopher Nolan's Batman movies and so forth. Yeah, I think here you have a, a superhero comic book that is explicitly geared towards adults. And yeah. I, I think that was, that was a big turning point. It sort of had the unfortunate side effect of ushering in the era of the anti-hero, like the dark, brooding comic book uh, hero, which you know produced some great comics. But it became a little redundant after a while. But uh, the dark, the Dark Knight is is an exceptional uh, episode in the in Batman, especially, but in superhero comics and comics in general. Yeah, absolutely. I will concur with the opinion about how it it changed the shape of comics. Really, that book and Watchmen really were the two books that that changed in the nineteen eighties. Changed how comics were being done. I have to say, though, I'll sound a an unpopular note. I really don't like The Dark Knight Returns. <laughs> I really don't like it. I find it well, you know, I've I've almost I've the 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 things that I've read by Frank Miller run on a scale from sort of okay to terrible, and uh, I would say this falls somewhere in the middle of that spectrum for me. It, it's just it it kind of bores me to be honest with you. But I do recognize its place in the Pantheon. So I do have it on my shelf. Yeah, I think it had an impact on me because I actually read it in 1986 when it came out. And you were scarred for life. (laughs) Yeah. I think it just sort of was an interesting change from all that had come before at that point in time. And oddly enough, there's a little clip at the very beginning of it, a little scene in which... um, Jim Gordon is talking with Bruce Wayne and they're reminiscing about the loss of Jason Todd. And this was before the death of Jason Todd in the comic books. You know, it's just kind of a funny coincidence that that took place. But incidentally, they are, in addition to releasing the Dark Knight 3, they are also in February putting out a miniseries that is dealing with that death of Jason Todd in the Dark Knight returns universe so Hmm. they're going to actually show what that was like and what you know that whole story is so some interesting things apparently the all-star batman and robin comic that came out maybe a decade ago or so is also a precursor to the dark knight returns frank miller and jim lee had done that and there were a few there was one crossover character the um the hideous nazi woman with swastikas on her boobs um, she was in the all-star Batman and Robin comic as well. So some interesting things there. I recommend it. If you don't want to bother reading the book, go at least find the movie. They've done a great animated version of The Dark Knight Returns. It just came out a couple of years ago. It's fantastic. I think it made that comic come to life in a new way. 
Okay, well, uh, thank you for that that recommendation, and uh, it is it definitely does fit in with our our topic today, as we are talking about violence in comics, and uh, we're going to talk about it on a number of different levels. But I thought we could start out with a little bit of discussion about the history of violence in comics, how violent were they uh, back in the day. And uh, Father Kyle, you, you wanted to say a little bit of something about that and about the rise of the Comics Code Authority in response to some of that. Yeah, if you look at the, uh, the shape of comic books, violence in comic books, over the the course of their run from the late 1930s and onward, and I think going even a little bit further back into the pulp magazines, you can see that early on there was a form of violence that was accepted in comic books and quite prominent in comic books. The early issues of Batman and Superman have people getting shot and stabbed and uh, you know killed in other sort of heinous ways. In fact, Batman throws a character off the roof and more or less says, well, he deserved it. You know, that's the kind of level of violence that was acceptable in those early books. But sometime around the early 1950s, there was a gentleman named Frederick Wortham who wrote a book. He was a psychologist. He wrote a book called The Seduction of the Innocent. And he began to make the claim that comic books um, were causing deviancy among the children who read those books. And that led, led to a number of Senate hearings where they were discussing this particular issue. And I think it kind of came out that people said, yeah, it seems to be that this level of violence that's in there and the early sexuality stuff that was in there was creating deviancy in children. And so the Comics Code Authority was formed around 1954 and this was a panel of reviewers that each comic company had to submit their comic books to, and they would review the comic books to make sure that it was contained within a level, an acceptable level of violence. Uh, oddly enough, I listened to a podcast back in the summer on the Comics Code Authority, and I wish I could remember who did it, but it was very good. They talked about the fact that the actual members of the Comics Code Authority, the people who were in the room, were all moms, uh, suburban housewives. And they were the ones who were responsible for reviewing these comic books. And apparently it lasted that way for a good long time, even into the early 1980s. That's interesting. So you find... Yeah, that's yeah, interesting. I, I, I was actually sitting here wondering if maybe or not there was a clergy person on there because i know when the people who rate movies what are they the the mpaa that that group uh theoretically although nobody's allowed to know who's members of it but that group theoretically has a clergy person involved um oh. so how about that that would have been sweet if there was a clergy position and if it was still around today it's not around but <laughs> it'd be sure a cool job to have right you get to read a lot of free comics that's right that's right yeah, so the, effectively the Comics Code Authority went into place and certainly the big two, um, DC and Marvel, fell under its, its rules and regulations. Ironically, within the Comics Code Authority, there was this whole thing where werewolves and vampires and all of this was deemed bad 
And so all of the monster comics that had existed up to that point in time were not allowed to be published anymore. Just some very weird stuff. But that lasted until roughly the 1980s. And then it started, Marvel and DC started to push away from it and do a little bit more in-house regulation, which you begin to see in the 80s comic books. There's more of a acceptance of some levels of violence that hadn't been acceptable before. They let Frank Miller run wild. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They did. Yeah, it, it's right. interesting. I mean, if you go back to some of the uh, older Spider-Man books, like uh, the, the character, the, uh, the vampire character, Mobius, he wasn't allowed to be a, a, like an actual vampire. What, what, now, what's Mobius's deal again? He, he doesn't. He, he like he's an energy vampire or something like that. He was a scientist who had some sort of accident that kind of gave him vampiric powers. But yeah, yeah, yeah. He, they kind of skirted around the edge with him on that. Exactly. Some of the books have really inspired uh, Doctor Wortham to write his book or provoked him to write his book, were, were the comics published by EC. Um, mm-hmm. You know, th- this was like the, the crime comics and the horror comics, tales of suspense and tales from the crypt and, 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 and these sort of stories, which, I mean, if you go back and, and read some of those stories, they are brutal. I mean, they, uh, they have some of the most shockingly violent imagery. Mm. The, the thing is, though, so... These comic books were were participating in a genre uh, uh, that was sort of prevalent at the time, the kind of in novels and film, the noir genre. And and they weren't necessarily being produced for children. These comic books, I think, were were kind of geared towards adults. But here's the thing with comic books, you can't stop kids from reading the adult type books you know mm-hmm. i mean you mentioned earlier and i mean how old could you have been uh, when the dark knight came out in, in 1986 11 11 right probably too probably too young to be reading uh, uh you know the dark knight i mean i know f- for my part i was reading some very adult and violent comic books when i was 11 or 10 or you know even younger in some respects there's always been this sort of line because uh Comic books have been associated as a medium for young uh, children uh, and for young boys in particular. And so the level of violence or sexuality in the books has uh, often been a, an area uh, that's caused a lot of problem and debate. Let's talk about the, the different ways in which violence has kind of appeared in comics. So I think probably at least somewhat in part because of the reaction against the early violence in comics and because of the Comics Code Authority and so forth, what you start to get in the 50s and 60s is what I would call cartoony violence, where it's it's a lot more, you know, beating up dinosaurs or uh, a lot of the, the kind of stuff that then bleeds into... Um, the 60s Batman show with the bam, pow, zap, you know. You're not seeing, like, bloody entrails on the ground or something like that. You're seeing largely a bloodless kind of fighting that takes place. And that kind of cartoony violence 
still exists. I mean, you can still pick out certain places where that'll show up. I mean, you, you still like you have the Batman 66 comic today, which is sort of emulating that. But you also have things like the Harley Harley Quinn book that's out now, which occasionally veers into the more bloody violence, but a lot of it is really just kind of cartoony. Uh, so there's stuff like that still. But you can kind of contrast that with what I would call the much more bloody violence that exists in, in comics now. I just finished reading a couple of days ago Batman Endgame, which is the, the most recent volume from uh, Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo, and uh, that thing is very, you know, bloody. Um, oh yeah. And uh, and or, but you can go back and see that. I mean, I can't remember if we talked about it on here or somewhere else, but I believe I saw somewhere that they're going to make a animated film out of Alan Moore's The Killing Joke, Batman The Killing Joke, which is like super violent, you know. Yeah. So. There's that kind of stuff, and the the Nolan Batman, the Daredevil show that um, was was uh, on Netflix, um, pretty much anything Frank Miller's ever touched. Um, you know, it's there's this there's this kind of very bloody violence that exists too, and I wonder what you guys think about that, the juxtaposition that exists now between cartoony violence and bloody violence. I don't know if it's just my age. I'm getting to be older now and being a parent, but I feel like I've gotten a little bit more sensitive to the amount of violence that's in comics. And it's funny that you mentioned Batman, the end game, because when I read that back when the comics were out in the springtime, I think it kind of wrapped up right at the beginning of the summer. When I read that, then I almost reached a point where I said, I don't think I can read Batman anymore. Mm. This is the level of violence that's in it. I just don't know that I can read it. Now they've kind of tamed that down with the current storyline that they've got going on. Some of that's gone away, but but it just felt like that might have been the the point where it pushed it right to the edge for me in terms of what I can take anymore. You know, having grown up on the Batman TV show and having read comic books from the 60s and 70s and 80s growing up, I think that there's something I appreciate about leaving certain things, certain violent things, leaving them in a tamer place where they're not so in your face. Your imagination can get what's there without actually having to see it. Like, for instance, somebody gets shot in a comic book in the you know 70s, let's say. Somebody gets shot in a comic book. You don't see the pool of blood or you don't see brain splatter or something like that but you get the idea the guy got shot and he's dead you know your imagination can use do the rest i i just find today where i kind of wish for that a little bit more than what we're getting or what we have been getting over the last few years in terms of level of violence just to play devil's advocate with you a little bit there because i i think generally i agree with you but but i think some people might respond to that and say well that may be the case but the kind of violence that you're talking about actually in some ways minimizes the reality of violence because it shows you know it only shows the person getting shot but it doesn't show their blood or it doesn't show this that or the other thing it's easy to think 
that violence is not as as terrible as it is whereas if they if they're showing the brain splattering or they're showing the you know really hard edge of it that it perhaps drives home the message violence is a real thing with real heavy consequences oh i think that is true if the kind of gore is used sparingly but oftentimes what you see in in comic books is a sort of over-the-top like blood and gore which has the opposite effect it has the effect of desensitizing one to violence yes so so you see you know you see brains all over the place and it, and it just like it becomes almost like a graphic thing you know it, it, it has this kind of visceral uh you know uh impact on the viewer but not an emotional one now if, if you went through an otherwise tame a comic book in terms of violence and all of a sudden a moment of graphic violence happens well then all of a sudden it, this is real it, it, it's only true as I said when it's done sort of sparingly I would agree with that and that would have been my answer as well to that, that point I mean I hear the point the sort of devil's advocate point you just made Father Jonathan but I think that there is that issue of desensitization that, that seems to be happening um, I think it's happening across the board with video games, with movies. We're just getting so much of it, and it's become so normal that it, it loses that emotional component that when you sparingly it can have. I just find something extremely uncomfortable about certain levels of it, and I think I still have that emotional reaction to it, which I'm kind of glad for, actually, to say <laughs> that you know I can read something violent and say, whoa, gosh, this is awful. You know, I tried to read The Walking Dead recently, and I got the big compendium of, like, the first 80 issues, and I decided to do a marathon reading of it and spent, like, six hours, and I put the book down, and I haven't touched it since. I felt awful, um, especially when you get to maybe, like, the 40th issue or something where there's this really awful scene of a woman torturing, a woman being tortured, and then a woman turning around and torturing this man in just graphic, awful ways. Like, it just felt bad. So I'm kind of thankful I still have some of that. I haven't been desensitized as many folks have today, I think. Continuing on that that same line for just one more minute, Father Kyle, let me ask you, because you said that when you read Endgame, which is a very recent Batman story, it was almost too violent for you. But thinking about something like Alan Moore's Batman, The Killing Joke, what, now when did that come out? Early 90s? 1988. Late, late 80s? 1988. Now that's that's a pretty violent story. I mean, if any for anybody who's who hasn't looked at it, I mean, spoiler alert, alert but uh, that that's where... Um, Barbara Gordon, uh, Batgirl, is paralyzed by the by the Joker in a very bloody scene. Um, there are even some kind of implications of of possible sexualized violence there. Would you say that something like Endgame is more violent than that, or do you think that it's more that something like Endgame has become the norm rather than the outside uh, element? 
I would probably say that I think it's it's that Endgame has become more of the norm. I mean, I read The Killing Joke when it first came out, so I was probably, what, 13 when that took place. I don't know if it's something that has to do with age in particular, but at 13 years old, that kind of violence, I was aware of it, and it was like, ooh, this is, you know, really pushing it. But for a 13-year-old, this is kind of cool. You know, it's kind of cool to see something like this. As a 40-year-old, and seeing, certainly looking at our world around us in particular, and just looking at the way things are, I guess it's just become a lot more. It's, it's become the norm, as you said. And maybe that has had more of the impact. And I think certainly within Batman comics, that level of violence just seems to be the norm. It seems to be taking place all the time. I do think, I've, I don't know what it is about that book, Endgame, and I recommended that, I think, if I remember, and I still stand by that recommendation story-wise, but um, there were just some things towards the end of that book that were like, gosh, this is just, it's all coming to a big head here. So I think it's probably, to answer your question, it's probably got more to do with the, the fact that it's become the norm than anything else. Let's talk a little bit about how we as Christians understand violence. Of course, we have to always keep in mind that not everybody in our, our listening audience is a Christian, but this is a topic that's kind of hard to talk about without thinking about that directly. How are we as Christians to, to think about or understand what the place of violence is or ought to be in in our storytelling, whether it's comics or anything else for that matter. I think as an adult coming into a, a more mature faith, it, it had the effect of kind of drawing me away from comic books, at least for a little while. And, and part of that was because I, I, I think I, I really matured in my faith in a context different than the one that I am in now. I, I mean, many of our listeners won't know this, uh, but before I was an Episcopalian, certainly long before I was a priest, I was uh, I was involved in the Society of Friends, or the Quakers. And so the Quakers are famous for their testimony to nonviolence. As that principle became more important for me, a lot of the comic books that I, I really enjoyed became somewhat a bit of, you know, I don't know, cognitive dissonance for me for a while. I mean, it wasn't the only factor that that, that led to me drifting away from, from reading comic books in a regular way, but it was certainly one of them. And I, I remember, um, you know, I, w- I was reading a lot of theology about nonviolence at, at the time, and, and one of the books that, that I read was by the theologian Walter Wink, and Walter Wink is a theologian who's written a lot on the topic of nonviolence. His book, The Powers That Be, was, was one that I read. And he talks about the myth of redemptive violence, he calls it. And he says this is the, this is the dominant sort of narrative for much of our culture, much of you know, the cultures of the world. And this is the idea that the, that the hero sets things right through um through violence that might makes right and he said that a lot of his understanding of, of the myth of redemptive violence came about through watching cartoons on television superhero cartoons and he said this is this medium is is perpetuating this idea of 
redemptive violence. And uh, in his book, he even talks at one point about visiting a comic book shop. And he talked in particular about the growing violence in comic books during his day, which we've already talked about. And he says in his book, I refer to a new wave of ever more brutal comic books and home videos. Recently, I spent an hour browsing through a mall comic shop, examining such fare as the Uncanny X-Men, Swamp Thing, War of the Worlds, The Warlock Five, The Avengers, The Spectre, Shattered Earth, Scout, War Shaman, The Punisher, Gun Fury, The Huntress, Dr. Fate, The Bloodsword, and so on. An entire store devoted to the promulgation of a paranoid view of reality, where violence is the only protection against those plotting our doom. And boys are almost the exclusive readership. Adolescents who are also enticed by video games, which accustom players to the notion that they will inevitably be killed and can delay the reckoning only by killing as many of their opponents as possible on their way out. And I remember reading that and being like, well, that certainly describes much of my childhood. (laughs) And and I think this refers to not only the sort of gory, gratuitous violence that we've talked about, but also the cartoony violence, because even the cartoony violence sort of perpetuates this idea of the myth of redemptive violence that, that, you know, might wait makes right. And this is the way the world is set to write. It's problematic for me, but then, I, I mean, you look at Holy scripture and Holy scripture also uses the language of warfare, uh-huh. um, to even when it's describing spiritual realities, it talks about the struggle between good and evil as being like a war, you know, with warrior figures like St. Michael the Archangel, you know. Um, but Wink's, you know, writing on this topic really sort of challenged me to think uh, more critically about, about the sort of things that I was reading. Yeah, I think that was very good, a very good observation that, you know, scripture is riddled with violence. So violence is a reality that we live in, in this old age of sin and death that we live in now. Violence is a reality of that, and you see that played out throughout scriptures. I think as Christians, we live with the hope that there will come a day when that violence will cease, when the new creation comes and the resurrection comes, that we'll live in a world that won't have that kind of violence. I mean, violence at its base is just conflict, right? And you you wouldn't actually be able to have a story if you didn't have some form of conflict in it. And so the the kind of violence that shows up, at at some level, it, it comes from that. It comes from opposing wills that come at each other, and they don't know what to do with each other. And that same story is the story told in the Bible, and sometimes that results in violence. Sometimes it even results in violence that God does, um, which would be a whole different topic that we could talk about. But if you want to talk about the ark in Scripture, it is an ark towards peace. What do the prophets, you know, we're about to get into Advent and the the, uh, prophecies of the coming of Jesus. What do the prophets talk about? 
They talk about the lion shall lay down with the, you know, lamb and the, the baby shall play uh, around the den of the asp and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, the idea of that is connected to, to Jesus himself as the, the one who is uh, the bearer of peace. And there's a lot of violence in the story of Jesus, but it's all violence that's directed towards him, none of which comes out of him. And so there is a, a, a kind of uh, Jesus-centered kind of movement towards peace over the course of Scripture, and yet the Bible doesn't shy away from showing us the bloody bits and the dark bits and the difficult bits. And so I think the question that we have to ask as Christians when we're looking at stories and how violence fits into them is not so much about how much blood is there in this scene versus that scene? I think the the better question is, what is this violence there to do? Is it there to be celebrated? Is it there to titillate us? Or is it there to show the brutality of the world? Is it there to point us towards something different than itself? Uh, that that to me is is the better question. What what has concerned me in both in comics, but more so even in, in culture that's come out of comics, pop culture, TV, and movies, and so forth, has been the trend in the last 15 years especially, the trend of anti-heroes who do as much violence as the villains that they fight. So if you think about what are the things that make a hero, what makes a superhero, you can talk about powers, but not everybody has powers. You can talk about fancy suits that they wear, but not everybody has a fancy suit. But one thing that they used to, in general, have in common was that they had a certain moral center to how they went about interacting. So Batman would would be violent, but Batman didn't shoot people and he didn't kill people. Superman had a certain place that he would stop. Contrast that with something like the Arrow television program, where they re-envision Green Arrow as this, like, mercenary ninja, almost. And in the first season especially, he's killing people right and left. Eventually that calms down, and he kind of gets it out of his system and realizes that might not be the best approach. I don't know, you guys may have read more Green Arrow than I have. I've never read a tremendous amount of it, but I can't remember ever seeing Green Arrow going on a killing spree. Um, no, he, he had like a boxing glove arrow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You have a, around the same time as the Dark Knight and then the rise of these sort of darker, grittier heroes, you had the same thing going on with the Green Arrow where they re-envisioned Green Arrow to be more of a darker, street-level kind of character. So okay. the Longbow Hunter series of, of Green Arrow did for Green Arrow kind of what the Dark Knight did for Batman. It made him a bit darker, and yeah, a bit more violent, too. Okay, so maybe maybe that is a an approach that came out of the comics first, but the, the criticism I'm trying to come up with here still stands, which is that we're elevating so many anti-heroes... And at a certain point, it does turn into something that where the violence becomes its own end. One thing that, that I thought of very quickly is, now I, I've never read the actual, I believe this is Frank Miller again. He's going to come after me for all of the things I'm saying about him today. Um, 
I'm thinking of the the Sin City movie. Yeah. I can't remember when that came out. About ten years ago, maybe. Yeah, I remember when that. that came out and seeing the ads for it, not really knowing much of the story, and thinking this looks really, this looks like it's going to be really great. And going to that with uh, with my wife, and I can't remember. I think she had to actually leave before it was over because it was so much. And I, I don't. I think I stayed in it, but I, I just that film is basically torture porn, you know? I mean, the whole drive of that, as far as I can tell, story-wise, if there is is even really a story to it, is let's show as much horrific violence as we can to excite you. Um, It almost makes me think of, like, horror movies like the Saul movies, you know, Uh where it's just like, let's see how far we can push this. That's the kind of stuff that I feel like, I mean, desensitizing is one thing, but I think exciting people about this stuff is another. I'm also very concerned with this trend of sexualized violence, you know, stuff like Game of Thrones, which I I had to stop watching after about the third season because there was not just that it was so violent, but it was so much sexualized violence. And those things were like linked together almost as if they wanted people to get a sexual thrill out of how much gore they were looking at that kind of stuff i find deeply concerning and i think both effects can take place with the violence i think there can be a desensitizing to it and there can also be that sort of titillating factor to it as well that that captivating factor so i agree i I concur with you on that i think that's part of the disturbing trend with it all today should say though that um just to back up for a moment that there is one redemptive violent act and that is our lord's (laughs) death on the cross yes we can say that that is not a myth of redemptive violence that is true redemptive violence there i i agree with you father although i think to go back to the point i was trying to make before how is that accomplished? It is it it is a redemptive, violent act that is accomplished not through Jesus waging violence yes. and killing yes. all of his enemies, uh, but through Jesus basically waging peace, accepting the violence that is perpetrated against yes. him and taking it in. And so it becomes about a sacrifice rather than about a, um, you know... Jesus coming right. out with a machete and a machine gun and saying, make my day. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, one of the things that, um, that helped me kind of get over this hump to find something in superhero books in particular that, that was more than just a myth of redemptive violence was reading C.S. Lewis and, and J.R.R. Tolkien you know, and, and, and their stories like um, the Narnia tales and the and the Lord of the Rings, where uh, you know there there is this sort of violence. I mean, there's fighting, there's conflict, but it's about heroism, and it's about sacrifice. the The people involved in it don't don't like it, but you know they're doing what they they need to do. You know. Um, which I think points towards something more, uh, a pure use of, 
of, of, of fighting, as it were, in, in, in comic books, that the battles that superheroes uh, wage for the forces of, of, of good, you know, are, are, could be sort of archetypes of, of this, you know, cosmic struggle between good and evil. There is heroism, there's good there to be celebrated, but it's not about violence, it's about, it's about heroism. It's about courage and things like that, virtues that, that should be celebrated. I do wonder sometimes why it, it seems to be that Christians, or at least Christian groups, seem so much more desperately concerned about sex in in media and, and in uh, film and television and books and comics than they do about violence. That may be a little bit of a over-exaggeration, but I don't think by much. I mean, I don't... I don't understand why there are, you know, uh, people that are protesting against something like Fun Home because it has some uh, lesbian scenes and so forth in it, which is large. But, you know, 95 percent of that book is about um, a girl and her father versus something like uh, The Passion of the Christ, which took the story of Jesus, which is already very violent, and just, like, gussied up the violence and made it much more so. And all of a sudden, you got crows pecking out guys' eyes and, you know, <laughs> pieces of flesh or, flying or, off uh, of him. and Or something like, and I haven't even seen this movie because I have no desire to, American Sniper, mm -hmm. which has sort of been celebrated by, by a lot of... Yeah. Um, Christian organizations and made this wonderful uh, Christian film. <laughs> but, um, yeah. 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 Well, that, that ought to guarantee us some letters. So, uh, <laughs> you can address those letters to Father Matt Stromberg, care of uh, Christ Church. I, hey, I'm not the one who went after the passion of the Christ. I think that's a much more controversial statement. <laughs> Yeah, that was that's right. That the person who said that was Father Kyle Tomlin. <laughs> no, it wasn't. T O M L I N. Okay. Uh well, I I'm sure that you all out there have some opinions about all of this uh and rather than hitting us uh and and beating us up and telling us how wrong we are, why don't you take out those violent urges on our social media instead? We'd love to hear from you there. Uh, isn't that what the internet was made for anyway, friends? So uh, you go to facebook.com slash godandcomics, or you can you can tweet at us uh, at godandcomics and, comics and uh, tell us what you think. We always, like, uh, we always like to hear from you. But for now, we're going to move into our final segment, and our final segment, as always, is This or That. This or that, this or that. Come on, everybody, let's this or that. Batman or Iron Man? This or that. Spider-Man or Superman? This or that. Boxes or briefs? This or that. DVD or VHS? This or that. Dungeons or Dragons? This and that. Moses or Elijah? This or that. This or that. This or that. Come on, everybody, let's this or that. Huh? Okay, gentlemen, are you guys ready for this or that? Yes. Yes, sir. You all out in podcast land can't see the, the big goofy smile that Father Kyle has now. Uh, as he strokes his beard in in anticipation of what I'm going to say. Uh, Father Kyle, first one is to you. Yes. I know that you are a big fan of the dolphins. <laughs> yes, that is true. Dolphins or killer whales? 
I'll go with Dolphins because I am a big fan of the Miami Dolphins, and I'll take it in that direction. Although I should say that rather ashamedly, given the performance they've been giving in the last couple of weeks, or for the last couple of years, for that matter, or the last couple of decades. (laughs) Yeah, you could probably play a team of killer whales against them, and uh, they might have a real real game there. (laughs) So, okay. Uh, Father Matt, this is a very important question. The lives of uh, many kittens depend on it. Maniple or no maniple? I'm I'm sure the the maniple is a very significant vestment. You know, it has it has a lot of important, you know, symbolic uh, functions. Or, but I I I never wear. I take it. I'm afraid I'm going to knock things over. It's sort of an awkward thing to wear. Uh, so mm. I'm gonna go with no maniple. That is incorrect. I'm I'm sorry to say. <laughs> there I'm is... with you on that, Matt. So we are two against one. Okay. Here. Well, um, you guys enjoy Protestantism, I suppose. Um, I do. Yeah, I know you do. Um, the, the, I, my ki- kitten references because there, I don't, I think it still exists. There used to be a book, a group on Facebook called "Every Time You Celebrate Mass Without a Maniple, God Kills a Kitten." So. <laughs> oh, God. Um, <laughs> I, speaking of violence, um, the, for those who are unfamiliar with the maniple, it is a, an item that sort of hangs off of the priest's left arm. It's only on the one side during the mass. I only have two sets that have maniples, um, so uh, maybe someday I will get a full set that has maniples. So I, on the whole, I kill less kittens than either Father Matt or Father Kyle, uh, but I am still contributing to the the horrible uh, kitten uh, deaths that are occurring annually. <laughs> Father Kyle, this one is to you. This is this is what I like to call a grade off. Okay, a grade off. You ready? Okay. All right. Saint Basil the Great or Saint Gregory the Great? Two greats. Uh. Which one are you going to go with? Keeping in mind, gonna... they both have epic beards. So They do. They do. I'm going to go with St. Basil the Great. And I think for no other reason than that I saw his picture a moment ago uh, on that lovely icon you had. Excellent choice. Excellent choice. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is with you, um, since that's what St. Yes. Basil wrote about, so... Okay, um, Father Matt, equally difficult choice for you. Captain Crunch or Captain America? I'm going to have to say Captain America. Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I like Captain Crunch, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, Captain America is more meaningful for me. I mean, after breakfast, the rest of the day. <laughs> Fair, fair enough. Although Captain Crunch is delicious, so he's got that going for him. Yeah, well, he makes delicious cereal. That That's is. right. Yeah, that is his superpower. And then he gives you the evil sugar crash down later. Yeah, That's yeah exactly. Captain America hasn't made me as fat as Captain Crunch has made me. <laughs> well, and I'll say this too: Crunch Berries, which also are in the Cap- Captain Crunch family, Crunch Berries also delicious. Whereas America Berries, not so much. 
<laughs> so there's that. Uh, Fa Father Kyle, staying with the theme of captains, Captain Marvel or the Captain and Tennille? I have to go with Captain Marvel. <laughs> that, I, uh, that is the correct I'm answer. I'm not a real fan of the Captain and Tennille. No. Sorry, okay. any of you who may be. We now, we have a surprising number of Captain Marvel. Captains are we talking about? Uh, I was wondering that too, but I still have to go with all of them. Yeah. The Captain and Tennille. Yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Father Father Matt, pinball or skeet ball? Or, or skeet ball? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one where you roll the ball up into the thing. You know what I'm talking oh, about? Yeah, I'm gonna have to say pinball because. It was very. It was featured very prominently in the Who's rock opera Tommy. So, um, you know that's that's contributed a lot to our culture and to my life. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking yes. that too. That's really funny. Uh, well, uh, obviously, pinball wizard. I mean, yeah, that deaf, dumb, right. and blind kid sure plays a mean pinball. All right. <laughs> Just think how different your answer would have been if that kid had played skeet ball instead of pinball. I don't know if it would have been quite the hit. Well, you know? Who knows? All right. Um, Father Kyle, swimming right after eating or playing with a stick that could poke somebody's eye out? I think I would rather swim after, right after I eat. I would much rather have a cramp than I would lose a limb or an eye or something okay um although i could drown that's true so that's true these are these are dangerous either way folks these i think are. the lesson we want Talk the kids violence. to have is don't do either of these things you know because if you right. if you swim right after eating kids you're gonna get a wicked cramp so that's right or by today's level of violence you'd get a wicked cramp drown and your head would explode <laughs> that's <laughs> that's right i saw uh somebody uh early on social media earlier today share a picture of a small cute little dog trying to come down some steps and it it fell and when it landed it exploded <laughs> i mean it didn't it was obviously fake it didn't really explode right. but it was it was really funny it was like the way car crashes always are in the movies you know like cars yeah. just run off of off of um off of cliffs or whatever it is, and they explode. And you're, I'm always l watching that, going, "Why are these cars exploding?" Like, there's, <laughs> I mean, if you if you shoot the gas tank, I suppose it might explode. But if the car just runs into a tree, there's no reason for it to explode. <laughs> anyway, okay, Father Matt, this one's a thinker. Algebra or the Olympics? Both of these things are two things that I have very little interest in. <laughs> um, but I, I think uh, maybe I have slightly more interest in the Olympics because of its whole, you know, I find a whole classical uh, connection kind of intriguing. Although algebra also has a, <laughs> I don't know, I, the Olympics, just because. Well, because I'd rather watch the Olympics and take an algebra test. What do you think of the idea of algebra becoming an Olympic sport? I, I, I think I might skip that one if, if it was televised. Yeah, me too. Father Kyle, 
Unicorns or griffins? I'm going to go with unicorns because that's what my daughter loves and is asking for for Christmas and sticking consistently to the story. So she wants an actual unicorn. Does she want an actual unicorn like that she can ride around on? There's a talking unicorn that is on sale at Toys R Us that she saw in a magazine and wants that. So in solidarity with her, I'll say unicorn. That's good. At least you can produce that. My, my, one of my terrible uh, t- childhood memories was being taken to the circus, the Ringling Brothers Circus, when I was about five years old. And all of the advertisements about it had been that they were going to have a unicorn, a real unicorn at the end of the circus. It was like a big deal. And so I was excited the whole time to see this real unicorn. And it came out and it was so very obviously a goat with a fake horn uh, pasted onto the center of its head. A goat? They couldn't even get a horse. Yeah, it wasn't even a horse. <laughs> it was a it was a goat. And I just thought, you know, I'm gullible, but I'm not that gullible. So Do do either of you use the Coverdale Psalter? No. no. <laughs> There's a lot of unicorns in, in the Coverdale Psalter. <laughs> really? <laughs> If you use that uh, Anglican service book, the the, the Psalms in the in the back are the are the cover are, are the Coverdale. <laughs> hmm. Lots of unicorns. <laughs> yeah, and sea That's beasts, crazy. I would imagine as well. Yes, and a, and a giant or two. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, Father Matt, you get the last one, my friend. The early work of Madonna, or a 57 Chevy. <laughs> you knew there was going to be one, right? There had to be well, one. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not a huge Madonna fan. Some of her earlier work is tolerable, but not as tolerable as cruising around in a 1957 Chevy. Uh, so I'm going to have to go with the Chevy on that one. Ding, ding, ding. I think that's the first time somebody's gone with the 57 Chevy. I think that's true. Oh, no, I, I think when we had B. Arthur versus the 57 Chevy, somebody said the Chevy, <laughs> which I was disappointed in because B. Arthur's hilarious. Oh, it was me. Yeah. It was me. Yeah. Yes. We should chart this over time. Like, look at, you know, <laughs> 57 Chevy versus various things. I'll have to go back things. and listen to the other podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We could make our our symbol on on social media 57 Chevy for a while. And like most people would not have a clue why that was. But the people who listen all the way through to the end, (laughs) the true believers, they would know. So, okay, well, that's going to do it for this or that. And that means that's going to do it for our show today. We hope that you have enjoyed listening to the show. You can find us online at godandcomics.com, and at godandcomics.com we have a show page for this show and every show, and if you look there, you'll find that we have links to a lot of the content that we talked about today so that you can find out some more about some of these things, see some cool videos, read some interesting stuff, so definitely check that out. The show is also listenable or downloadable through our website, or you can subscribe on iTunes. And while you're on iTunes, if you wouldn't mind giving us a rating, and uh, if you if you want to really win some points with us, you could uh, give us a review. Those are always wonderful things. They help other people to find the show. 
Our theme music, which you are hopefully banging your head to right now, is provided by the illustrious, the one and only, the non-violent in the extreme, Father Paul Wheatley. Uh, until next time, I'm Father Jonathan Michigan. I'm Father Kyle Tomlin. I'm Father Ben Stroberg. And we'll see you.